Amen. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And uh, as we sang that song, it just, the, the lines there of the cup we drink, the bread we eat, causes us to long for our bride uh, or for, for the groom. And, and um, we're going to come together next week and we're going to celebrate communion together and take the Lord's Supper together. And that's what we do is we remember his sacrifice and we look forward to his coming. And uh, what a great song. Well, in Mark 14, we'll be 53 through 65 today. And I told the, uh, the guys in the sound booth just a little bit ago, we're approaching landing. We're about to bring this plane of Mark in for a landing. We've got about six or seven more weeks and we will have gone through the entire book. And uh, it's taken us two years. We will finish up. Uh, probably right at Easter, maybe right before Easter. And uh, we started right after Easter two years ago. But uh, I think it's been a worthy investment for us to walk through just verse by verse, methodically through the Word of God together. And uh, you may differ. If, if you differ and your opinion is different, just keep it to yourself, all right? We won't, you know, you can say amen, but don't say anything else, all right? No, we'll, we'll deal with that later. Uh, This passage today, I've titled this sermon, That's Not Fair. You ever found yourself saying that? That's not fair. As a kid, if you grew up with siblings, you probably found yourself often saying, That's not fair. Um, You play in and things get a little rough and mom or dad comes walking in and they catch you retaliating. And even though your, in my case, sister started it, You're the one they caught. That's not fair. Oftentimes we look at things and we say, that's not fair. Whether it's the economy. I heard this week of someone this week uh, walked in after 30, 40 years on the job and the office called him in and said, we just don't need you anymore. And they escorted him out. And I would imagine that that person had every right to say, that's not fair. Sometimes you go to the hospital and you get the test results and you look and you say, that's not fair. There's things that go on in our lives that are not fair. Today we're going to look at Jesus going through the first of two trials. And in this trial, we are going to be tempted to scream at the text because Jesus is silent and we'll say it for him. That's not fair. But we will see Jesus model for us what it means to suffer and to suffer well and to submit to the will of God and to boldly confess Christ in the middle of it. Let's look at this text together. Beginning in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but they they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple 
that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. This morning, I want to show you in this that Jesus suffers. He suffered here cowardly justice and vigilante judgment. And he models for us what it is to bravely submit and to boldly confess in the midst of that. This is one of those. I came back last Sunday night after the text and I came back and I said, you know, last Sunday morning, I didn't apply a whole lot. There are some passages of Scripture where we don't need to make it about us and how this applies and how we should do this or do that. Sometimes we need to just see glory in the work of Christ. Today in this text, we see we can glory in the work of our God, but we can also see that He is modeling for us what we are to do when we are being persecuted and suffering for His name. So let's look at this together. First of all, Jesus suffered cowardly justice. They had already made up their minds what they were going to do, hadn't they? They had already decided that he was guilty and he must die. This is what it means when they lead him to the high priest. They all come together. And in verse 55, they were seeking testimony against him to put him to death. We have sort of the law of the land is someone is innocent until proven guilty here in our land today. But not so here. Jesus was guilty until proven guilty. I mean, they just had to prove it. They already knew he was, but they just had to get the evidence to hang him, or in this case, to crucify him. They were seeking testimony to put him to death. In verse 56, they got the best witnesses that money could buy. Yet even their testimony didn't agree. I mean, they had paid Judas the money to betray him and to bring him to them. And they're now in this court of the house of the high priest. And Jesus that night when he was arrested, he was, he was taken back and forth all over Jerusalem. He was taken first to the house of Annas, who was not the high priest, but he was the father of the current high priest. He had been the high priest for a number of years, but he still had great influence. And some say he was probably the mastermind behind this whole operation. They take Jesus to Annas' house and they take him there and he questions him somewhat, but then he sends him on. He sends him on to Caiaphas because he can get nowhere. At Caiaphas, at, at, the, at the palace there of Caiaphas, they begin to question him. And they're all standing around and interrogating him. And they've paid witnesses in the crowd, just as they paid Judas, to stand up and to testify against him. Yet even those that they had paid to testify against Jesus couldn't say the same thing. And this was important because Old Testament law stated that for a person to be convicted, especially of a capital 
crime with the death penalty in in uh, in, in, in in flux that two or three witnesses had to agree. Now, this is crazy to think about. They have dogged Jesus steps his whole life. For three years, not his whole life, but from when he came on the scene for three years, they have followed him everywhere. They have followed him through fields. They have followed him in the temple. They have followed him in Galilee. They've been everywhere he's been. And here it comes down to their masterminded plan. And they can't get two people to agree in what he did wrong. Don't you think this is a testimony to the fact that he was innocent? They can't even... Pay for it. They get the best that money can buy, and they can't agree. Verses 57 and 58, Jesus never stated. This was the accusation that they made. And even in this, they didn't agree. But two finally came forward and said, we heard him say that he was going to destroy this temple, and that in three days he would build it again. Is that what Jesus said? Jesus never said that. Jesus, in John 2.19, said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise, raise it up again. Now, they assumed that Jesus there was talking about the temple made with hands, the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple. But Jesus was not talking about Herod's temple. Jesus was talking about his own body. And Jesus was not talking about him being the one who would destroy the temple, but that they would destroy the temple and he would Raise it up again. They come and they accuse him of this. And even this goes nowhere. They can't even agree about this. Their testimony did not agree. They are here hiding behind their own justice system. And they have planned this thing. And even in their planning, they can't get it to stick. They can't say the same thing. They, were, they are cowards. They are sinful Vile men who are hiding behind their own laws, trying to let the law prove that they are indeed holy. This trial was illegal. It was illegal in a number of ways. They were trying to hide behind it, but their own law said that, number one, no trial could be held at night. We know that this is around midnight and carrying into the night where he's standing in front of Caiaphas. It's very much night, and their own law said that can't happen. The verdict in the capital case could not be reached until the second day. Well, they would reach their verdict in just a matter of minutes. In just a few hours, they would reach the verdict and it would be on the very same day. Trials could not be held on the eve of the Sabbath or on the eve of a feast day. And the very next day was Passover and they were breaking their own law in holding this trial. Witnesses had to be warned, just like they are in our court of law today. They have to be warned to tell only those things that are true and only those things that are firsthand. And here they have paid witnesses to lie. And these witnesses are not concerned with telling the truth at all. Those accused of blasphemy could only be convicted if they reviled the name of God. And Jesus doesn't do that here. Yet they condemn him for it. Trials could not be held in the palace of the high priest. And that's exactly where they are. They are in Caiaphas' residence. There are no lawyers. There are no, nobody around who should be there. They are not in the right place. The Old Testament does not 
specify crucifixion as a punishment. Stoning, yes, but not crucifixion. And they would carry this through to crucifixion. Not to mention basic laws like don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And here they are trumping up charges against him, lying repeatedly just to bring him to the end they want to see. Jesus here suffers cowardly justice. They hide behind their own justice system in order to validate their choices and decisions. Secondly, Jesus suffers vigilante judgment. Look down at, at, uh, at the end of the passage here, or close to the end of the passage. At verse uh, 64, they all condemned him as deserving of death. This is appalling, isn't it? Who is it again that they are condemning deserving death? This is Jesus, right? This is the Son of God. This is ironic because here, the great high priest is brought to their high priest. The one who will one day judge them, they are not now standing in judgment over him. He stands here in vigilante judgment. They have no right, no rule to judge in the way that they are. But they are taking the law into their own hands, breaking it where necessary, hiding behind it where necessary, so that they can condemn him to death. It's ironic, too, that Jesus here, their first line of questioning, was one toward hate speech or terroristic threat. They thought the charge they would get him on was he threatened to tear the temple down. He was going to tear the temple down. Now, if, if, if someone came to us today and said, you know what, I'm going to tear your building down, that would be terroristic threat, wouldn't it? If someone walks into the uh, GSP airport, Greenville-Spartanburg airport, and, and uh, they go in there and they go right up and they're, they're right in the hallway and you've got all these gates going different places and they open their coat and they say, I've got a bomb strapped to me. I'm going to blow this place up. We would say that's a terroristic threat. And that's what they thought is we can say he, he said he was going to destroy the temple, but ultimately didn't stick. They didn't get him on hate speech or terroristic threat. What they got him on was blasphemy. They found him guilty of blasphemy. And certainly, if Jesus had claimed to be God and he really wasn't God, then yes, he would be deserving of death. The Old Testament called for it. The Old Testament called for that if a man claims to be God when he is not, that they would take him out and they would stone him. That they would lay their hands on him carry him out of the city, and they would heave large rocks on him and take his life from him. So certainly, if Jesus here is saying, I am God, when he really wasn't, then he should die. But the one thing that they never took into consideration was that he was actually telling the truth. That Colossians 2.13 is telling the truth. That all the fullness of God dwells in him. He really was God. They didn't let that cross their mind. They looked at all of the miracles, looked at all of the healings, looked at all of those things that were supernatural. They heard the voice from the heaven when he was baptized. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. They ignored it all. And they crucify him as a blasphemer. They escalate here into a mob. And the Bible here says that they begin to spit on him and mock him and they beat him. 
R. Kent Hughes, when it, he comments here on their spitting on him, he calls it the grossest of personal insults. Isn't that true? I mean, every so often you'll see somebody on the athletic field, football field, get up in each other's face and there's an argument going on. And it's okay. It's part of the game sometimes for some pushing and some shoving to go on. But occasionally a player will spit through the face mask into the face mask of another. And that's it. That is in National Football League the worst insult you could possibly give. And this is what they are doing here to our Lord. They begin to spit on him. They begin to spit in his face. These men, these 71 who make up the Sanhedrin here, come before him. And when they condemn him guilty of blasphemy, they all begin to push into his face and spit into his face. The Bible says that they cover his face and they slap him and punch him. What happened here was one of them probably took a cloak and threw it over his head. And they began to punch him in the face. They began to slap him in the back of the head probably began to kick him from behind. And when they did, each time they did, they called out to him and they said, Prophesy! Tell us who hit you. They mocked him. And they did this based off a misinterpretation of an Old Testament scripture that, ta- that, that talked about the Messiah. They interpreted it to mean that he could be able to prophesy just from smell alone. And so they think, well, if you're the Messiah... You can certainly smell us. Which one did it? The Bible says that here, after they do this, they spit on him, they cover him, they mock him and punch him, that they hand him over to the guards, and the guards receive him with blows. This means that when the guards received him, he walked through the gauntlet of their mistreatings. These strong soldiers took their knuckles and forced them into his face and into his ribs, probably brought their knee up to his face and to his nose and pulled his head down. This is what our Lord suffered. He suffers here. This cowardly justice, these that are supposed to be the religious men, the defenders of truth, hiding behind their own law, having already made up their mind, but hiding behind it so that they don't violate it. When in fact they're in violation of it. He then suffers this violence. This this vigilante judgment where they hand him over. What does he model for us? Before I get to that, let me just say this. That oftentimes when we come to passages like this, we love to see ourselves in the place of Jesus. And we love to think that as we live for Christ in this world, that we're the ones who are suffering unjustly. That there are those that are cowarding behind justice and they're hurling insults at us and saying things that aren't true. They're mistreating us. And while we may not be the victims of violence or someone spitting in our face, we're oftentimes, we see ourselves as the victim. But I would like to pose to you this morning that more often than we would care to admit, we don't play the part of the victim, but we play the part of the perpetrator. We hurl insults at one another. We say false things about one another. We have already made judgment about one another. We gossip and we slander. And while we may not physically go and spit at someone's face, we do it behind their back with our words, with our actions. 
And let me tell you something, church. If we truly are the church of God, we will be marked by a love for one another. That we care for one another. That we want to see each other succeed in following after Christ. Not that we would hate one another and make up things. And I would tell you that every time that we attack another human being, we are attacking the very image of God. Because every human being, regardless of what you think about them, regardless of age or sex or color of skin, or whether they would be classified as special needs or normal or whatever the case may be, every single human being is worthy of complete dignity because they are created in the image of God. And every time you and I laugh at someone and mock someone and make fun of someone, we are saying that somehow they are disconnected from that and they're not worthy of respect. But instead, we should see ourselves as the benevolent children of God, bringing nothing to the table, owing, or earning nothing of what He gives us, and therefore being generous with the way that we treat and love others as well. God has placed, just as these vigilante judges here, put themselves in a place that is not meant to be theirs. They step into a place of authority that is not rightfully theirs. God has also placed people in authority over us. Every single one of us is under some sort of authority. So, nope, not me. I am my own man. I am the king of my world. No one tells me what to do. Oh, yeah? Go out today on 85 and just hit about 110 by a police officer and you tell me the same thing. If you don't pull over and get a ticket, you will be ran off the road by a team of police officers and you will be in jail and calling me. And I will not come, okay? We all have positions of authority over us. Whether they be police officers or judges. I I remember having to go and stand as as a character witness for someone in Spartanburg County Court one day. It's been several years ago and stood there before the judge, and I was, this was new territory to me, and I walked up to the judge, and I had my hands in my pockets, and walked up, and the judge looked at me and said, uh, take your hands out of your pockets. Yes, Your Honor. You know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't hesitate. I didn't like, who are you to tell me, judge? You don't do that in a court of law, right? And you also don't do that in the face of God. God has placed these people over us. Whether they're police officers or judges or the president. I don't care what you think about his leading of the country. He is in the position of the president. Placed there. The Bible says that the leaders of the world are handpicked by God. Placed there. He will use them at his discretion. Our government all around us, whether it's the national level or the state level, they're over us. At God's direction. In the home. Husbands. This is not popular. But the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. It's not not me up here wanting to be chauvinistic. It's not me wanting to be up here and put women in the kitchen and all that sort of thing. That's That's not where I'm coming from. God has established the home with a certain order. And he has put the husband into the home to lead. 
The Bible teaches that husbands and wives are equal in the eyes of God. That they're equal, but they have different roles. They have different functions. That one is not greater or lesser than the other, but they serve in different roles, much in the same way that the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are equal, but they serve different ways. They function in different ways. Children. Children, you should talk to your parents with respect. You should obey your parents because God has placed them over you as His representative in your life. It's a great place for the teenagers to say, Amen. That would have been great. You would have earned a lot of points with your parents right then. Justin, Josh, Nicole. There you go. Thank you. All right. You listening? Everybody back there? Billy? Sandra? Yeah. God has placed these people over us as authority over us. And we can sometimes very quickly go to where this Sanhedrin, these religious leaders go to, and step out of the bounds that have been placed for us to walk in, to live in, and step where we are never meant to step. And they step into the place of judging God. And we would say, that's not fair. It may not be fair that Jesus was spit on. It may not be fair that he was covered and punched and beaten. It may not be fair that they had made up their minds that he was guilty and that he must die before they ever proved it. Just because it's not fair doesn't mean that it will be left undone. Just because we're going to see that he was silent and went to the cross does not mean that they got away with it. Let's look at this. We oftentimes see ourselves as playing the part of perpetrators. But sometimes we are victims. Sometimes we do suffer these same injustices. And when we do suffer mistreatment, unfair slander and violence, if you will, whatever the case may be, Jesus here models for us what it is to bravely submit to the will of God and to boldly confess in the middle of it. Let's look at this together. Jesus models brave submission. Isaiah 53, verse 7, it was prophesied about him that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. You ever seen a lamb that you were afraid of? I've not seen a lamb that I've ever been afraid of. Never. Maybe a goat every now and then. You get a rogue goat, you know, or I was afraid of my, my papa's mule growing up. It almost killed me. But never a lamb. Why? Because they're innocent. They're soft and cuddly. They're, they're submissive. You will never turn on ESPN and see on the PBR, the PBR, the Professional Bull Riding Association, has been replaced by the PLR. You know, there's never going to be a professional lamb riding association. Okay? There's a reason. Bulls are intimidating. They are ornery. They want to buck you off. You sit on a lamb and probably he's going to just hang out. You know? And this is what we see in Jesus. Jesus here, the one who creates the universe, who holds it in place, comes before their threats, their taunts, their illegal actions, and he could call down 72,000 angels 
One angel able to kill 185,000 men in history. At any moment, he can stop this thing. But yet he is like a lamb, submissive to it. He submits to the will of God for his life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21-23. through 23, Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The reason that Jesus is able here to submit is because he repeatedly, continually turns himself over to the one who is just and the one who judges and turns his accusers over to the one who is just and who will judge them. All of us at times would love to go a little Medea, wouldn't we? If you don't know who Medea is, just hang with me just a second. All of us at at times would love to go just a little Medea. All of us would love to jump on the forklift and lift the person's car in Kmart parking lot, right? And flip it over. All of us at times would love to crash our car through the drive-thru and climb over the counter, okay? And, And take what we wanted, right? All of us at times would love to play a little bit of grit ball. If you're a Medea fan, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, you're, you're out of the loop. Here's what I mean. If, you, if, you, if you're not a Medea fan, all of us at times would love to take justice into our own hands, wouldn't we? We, we, would, we would love to just, that, when somebody just treats us ugly, we would love to give it right back. The other day I'm driving down the interstate and, driving along and there's a guy going a certain speed and I'm going just a little faster than him and I'm coming up beside him and I'm getting ready to pass him and I've got to get past him so that then he can get past this other car but instead of letting me just go easily by him he revs up and stays with me and takes me and I can't pass him can't get around it why is that Because he's got this in him that I was treating him unjustly. That that was his space and he should be the leader and he's going to do his thing. There's times when all of us, you you stand anywhere and there's a line. You got there first. Someone comes in and they don't really see that there's a line and they just sort of kind of walk up there. What do you want to do? Every bit of you wants to go, hey, 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 there's a line. Right? Ever been at? an amusement park and seen teenagers come running through and they jump the fence and get in line in front of you. I have thrown teenagers out of line that I did not know. All of us want to do that. But Jesus here models for us what it is to submit when we are mistreated. False accusations are made against us and He does it because He hands them over to the one who is just and will judge and He hands Himself over to the one who is just and will judge. He was able to quietly submit, to continue entrusting himself to his God, to continue to entrust those that mistreated him to his God. And since he could do that, he's also left us an example to do the same. Some of you are holding on to grudges. People have hurt you at some point in history. You've held on to that and held on to that. And every time their name is mentioned or you have to be around them, you are just angry and bitter. And let me tell you something. It's not hurting them one bit. It's hurting you. I 
favorite quote about unforgiveness is, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. Some of you are hanging on to things. People have wronged you in some way. And what you need to do is turn them over to God. Turn yourself over to God and just trust Him. Because you know that in the end, He will right every wrong. Because He is indeed just. He is just. There's nothing that will go on in this world that is unjust that will not be judged. Everything, everything that happens in history will either be covered by His blood or it will be judged by His holiness. It will be repaid in full at the judgment. Jesus models here for us brave submission. He also models for us bold confession. When, the, when they come to the end and they say, you know what, this line of questioning here about did he say he was going to destroy the temple or, or did he not or whatever, this is getting us nowhere. We can't get anybody to agree. And the high priest in frustration stands before Jesus and he says, tell me, are you or are you not the Christ? Just utterly flabbergasted. I mean, they've had three years to plan this thing. And he's just frustrated. Are you or are you not? Jesus' silence frustrates him. Jesus, for the first time, speaks up. He says, I am. I am, which is the name of God. He's claiming here to be deity. I am. And then he goes on and he says, and you will see the Son of Man, which is his favorite name for himself. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, The right hand is the place of honor. That he will be sitting at the place of honor beside the power, which is a name for God. That he will be seated at the right hand of God. And that one day they would see him coming again. And while at this point he may look weak to them, he may look like the lamb to them at this point, there's coming a day when he will come in the clouds. He will come with power. He will no longer be the lamb. He will be the lion. And he boldly confesses this. Up to this point, they must have thought he is weak. Look at him. How did he save others? He won't save himself. He just chose his words carefully. This is a reference all the way back to Daniel chapter 7. When he here says... He's going to come with the clouds of heaven. It's a reference here. They knew. They understood what he was saying. They knew he was claiming to be God. And that's why here that the high priest tears his garment. It was actually illegal for the high priest to tear his garment. It was a common practice for for the common people of the day. They could tear their garments at real bad news. The only time it was legal for the high priest to tear his garment was in the case of blasphemy. And dramatically, he tears his garment and he says, what else do we need to hear? We need no witnesses. We have none. It's a good thing. We don't need any. You've heard it with your own mouth. They don't need to gather two or three witnesses for what he just said because he had just said it in the midst of 71. They had all heard it. He boldly confesses. What do you say about him? He is worthy of death, they said. And I would submit to you that His bold confession is made from the platform of his brave submission. 
that oftentimes you don't have any power to boldly confess because you have not bravely submitted. But our brave submission to the will of God oftentimes is the very stage from which people will listen to us when we boldly confess Christ. When they see you living your own life and doing your own thing and demanding your rights and being offended and carrying out vengeance of your own and then trying to stand up and boldly confess Christ, they will say, he's a confusing man. She is a weak woman. But when they see you in the face of injustice and false accusations, say, Nothing, because you submit to the will of your God. The opportunity will come for you to say, let me tell you about why I am the way I am. And I'm not saying that we should never, we should never evangelize until we have the opportunity to live before people. There are cases where we can evangelize on the spot. But more often than not, you will have the opportunity in everyday life just to live through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel life, and bravely submit to whatever comes your way as the will of God for you, and then you will have opportunity to boldly confess. Jesus models it for us, and I would call you to it. Stop demanding your rights. Stop seeing yourselves as better than others around you. We must, we must, we must see ourselves as nothing good dwells in us. The only thing that I will boast in is in the grace of my God. If I must boast, I boast in my weakness. But I will glory in Christ. It's not fair sometimes, but it will not go undone. Whatever comes your way, mark it up to the will of God. Receive it and boldly confess Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, God, thank You for Your your Word. Thank You for, God, Your example. God, thank You for what You've done. Jesus, we thank You that You were like the Lamb. God, you could have been like the bull. You could have been like the lion. God, for our sake, you were the Lamb. And you took the spitting and you took the beating. You took the injustice. And we're going to see that continue as you go to Calvary. And God, we say thank you. God, in our lives, God, I pray today that in this place, that you, in the, in the lives of the believers here, God, that you today would help us to live the example that you have left for us. We can't do it in our own strength. We will wind up taking things into our own hands. But God, help us to bravely submit and to boldly confess that you are the Christ. And God, for those who are here today that have never received the gift of grace, have never received your love, in the finished work of Christ. God, today I pray that you would move on their hearts. God, that you would cause them to be born again. And God, that they today would turn from their sin and trust you as Lord and Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond. We want you to reflect for just a few seconds while you're sitting there. Ethan will play softly and
and let you reflect. This is not meant to play with your emotions. This is an opportunity for you to spend time with God and say, God, what is it that you would have me to do as a result of what I've heard? And then Ethan will direct you to stand and I'll come back to the front. I'll be here to receive you. If you need to know how to receive Christ as Savior, I'd love to talk with you about that. If there's something going on in your life, maybe something you're struggling with, you're being treated unfairly and you need help in submitting, I would love to pray with you about that. If today this, you've realized this is where God's calling you to join and to serve here, then I would love for you to come during this time. Whatever it is that God leads you to do, be obedient today.